there's a, a sleepy little island in the Mediterranean that's destined to be the next vacation hotspot for Americans. Most Americans headed to the Mediterranean usually end up in the same places, the Greek islands of Mykonos or Santorini, or on the coast of countries like Italy, Croatia, or Spain. While all those destinations have their charms, inevitably they become tourist traps with overbooked hotels, overpriced restaurants, carnival cruise docks spilling out with loud American tourists wearing their flower lays and cheesy sunglasses and a dab of sunscreen on their nose. Unlike those places, this island, according to experts, hasn't yet caught the eye of Americans. They predict we're about to invade the island in the next couple of years. And why wouldn't we? 300 days of sunshine per year, diverse landscape, you have your postcard-perfect mountain scenery, your stunning beaches, your enchanting villages. Plus, there are ancient ruins dating from the Roman era, a Greco-Roman amphitheater, even as you see behind me, a tomb of ancient kings. There's also sunken ships to explore while scuba diving and a little oasis for swimming. On top of all of that, mouth-watering cuisine, a typical island meal is served in up to 30 small appetizer-sized plates of traditional food. Sounds like a wonderful place to take a mission trip. And I'm <laughs> thinking about being a missionary there myself. It's hard, but you know, some people are called to go to tough places. I didn't tell you the name of this island. It's Cyprus. Now before you go and book your summer vacation, I should probably let you know its nickname. It's called... The island of spies. Behind the beaches, behind the historic sites is an island infiltrated with spies. See, spies were not just a Cold War phenomenon. Cyprus is strategically located at the crossroads of Europe, Africa, and the Middle East. It's become a base for various surveillance operations. It's rumored you can monitor all radio and satellite communication within a certain circumference which includes, but is not limited to, the entire Middle East. You'll find little outposts on the island belonging to the UK, the US, the Russians, and Israel. Because it's a haven for spies, countries even spy on one another from the island. Just a few months ago, an alleged spy van was found equipped with sophisticated surveillance capable of hacking any phone and listening to the conversation, regardless of the level of encryption. This island is complete with agents from various countries disguised as tourists wearing flower lays, cheesy sunglasses, and a dab of sunscreen on the nose. What's crazy about this island is that it has a rich history of espionage. It's a tangled mass that historians have been unwinding for years. The locals don't like the island's nickname, but it's reality. Like some of the great spy centers of old, Casablanca during World War II, Cairo during the years of Soviet influence. Cyprus wears its new label uneasily. I am not saying don't vacation there. Go, have fun, learn from the historical sites, soak up the rays on the beach, eat all 30 plates of traditional food. But just be aware that the island is a listening station. In our text, Paul tells Titus the exact same thing I just told you. There's an island in the Mediterranean known as the Island of Spies. 
This little sleepy island isn't named Cyprus, however, it's named Crete. A spy is someone you usually associate with the government, but in its truest sense, a spy is someone who collects information and simply brings it back to a source. And Crete is filled with them. I want to prove that to you at the end of the message in my applications. But here, Paul says, I'm going to teach you, Titus, so that you can teach the 100 churches on the island how to live among spies. Let's do a little review. In chapter 1, we covered doctrine and duty in the church. We talked about qualifications of a, of a pastor, elder, bishop. We talked about marks of false teachers and how to address them. In chapter 2, we talked about doctrine and duty in the home. We found their instruction for living for older men, older women, younger men, younger women. We found out in chapter 2 how grace trains us. Trains us to say yes, trains us to say no. Grace puts us in school. In chapter 3, we have a doctrine and duty in the world. And Paul says, Titus, while the islanders are spying on you, while the world is watching, you need to be living before them a certain way. They are inspecting. They are listening. They are in vans, at restaurants, beside you at work, in your amphitheaters. They want to know what you're teaching. They want to know who else your message has penetrated. They are evaluating your behavior and making judgments about your allegiances. They want to know if the gospel really makes a difference. And you need to adorn the doctrine before the spies. It's interesting that in chapter 1 we are told to evangelize with our lips. And in chapter 3 we are told to evangelize with our lives. This whole book is about evangelism. Convert the spies, turn them, swing them. What if you went to an evangelism class and, and you're expecting methods... Maybe a method of using the law to show people they, they're in need of the law keeper, Jesus Christ. The, the Ray Comfort method. Or, or maybe you go to a class and you're expecting as a tool the method of this was my life before Christ. This is when I met Christ. This is my life since Christ. Just three simple things there to share your faith. What if you're expecting some method and the guy stands up and he just starts talking about holiness and how you should live? Now that would, be, that would be weird. You'd say, wait a minute, am I in the wrong classroom? Is this Ethics 101 or Evangelism 101? It's both. The greatest teaching on evangelism is teaching on holiness and purity. So I hope you're ready for evangelism class today. Titus wins his island the same way we win our island. Crete has spies, Clarksville has spies. There's an island that needs to be converted in the Mediterranean and an island that needs to be converted in Oak Grove and Hoptown and Fort Campbell. How are we to live among the spies? First, live like your hope rests on Calvary's hill and not Capitol Hill. Notice the first two words of verse 1. Remind them. <laughs> Titus, you're not an innovator. You are a reminder. You don't need to come up with new material. You preach the old stuff. There is no new doctrine, only ancient doctrine. And church, we, we live on an island of preachers who need to be delivered from their unhealthy lust of originality. Remind them, the verse continues, to be submissive to rulers and authorities. The islanders had a reputation for being dissatisfied and disgruntled people. They were under Roman rule and it made them angry. They were always involved in some sort of plotting, some kind of insurrection. 
Plutarch, the first century historian who lived during the same time Titus served on the island of Crete, wrote that the Cretans were always on the verge of revolting. And then we come to verse number one. This would be quite a change for them. They didn't grow up like this. Now, now you're telling me it's a Christian obligation to submit? Titus, tell these new Christians not to act toward government like their unsaved daddies and unsaved granddaddies. They may still have pirate blood in their veins, but they are new creatures in Christ. And they should stand out remarkably different in their attitude toward authority. And friends, God's telling us the same thing. Submit to your rulers and your authorities. Don't forget that when Paul wrote these letters, Nero was on the throne and society was as depraved as ever. There were no sexual norms. Heterosexuality was considered prudish by society. The emperor was bisexual. Pedophilia, adultery, idolatry, abortion, prostitution, and drug addiction were not only empire-wide, they were legal and absolutely acceptable. Rulers were ty tyrants. They lacked integrity. They were murderous. Government made laws that were not equitable, not just, not fair. Yet Paul says, submit. Friend, you have no excuse not to submit to your rulers and authorities. It doesn't matter if your ruler is Caesar, Herod, Pilate, Felix, Festus, Agrippa, Stalin, Napoleon, Winston Churchill, Bill Clinton, Barack Obama, Donald Trump. It doesn't matter who it is. Paul says, be submissive. As Paul has already explained in Romans 13, the state's authority has been delegated to them, not by a vote, but by God. The Christian is to obey civil authorities regardless of whether the leaders are Christians or not. And rather than mount an insurrection or instigate a plot to overthrow Nero, Paul goes on to say, notice the next two words, be obedient. Now, if I'm an islander, I'm not receiving these words very well. Be obedient. We want to kill the rulers who have one hand around our necks and the other hand in our pockets. And Paul says, Christians are not anarchists or rebels. Christians must be ideal citizens. You don't get to say, as a Christian, I don't like the leader, so I'm not going to obey the leader. It's a blight on the gospel when you only honor authority that you find agreeable. The gospel is supposed to create the best citizens. Christianity doesn't relieve you of civic duties. It enforces them. So let's bring it to us. What does it mean for us? It means that we should be obedient when we fill out the forms for IRS. It means we should obey the hunting and fishing quota. We should pay property tax. We should not be rude when a police officer pulls us over. You know, I get pulled over about once a week, so that's, that one really hits home for me. <laughs> you don't get to pray over whether you meet city codes or operate your business according to state regulations or pay your employees at least minimum wage or get your car inspected and pay the registration fee and, and wait forever in line at DMV. Christians don't get a free pass. So the natural question is, who are our authorities and rulers? The wording here carries the idea of every level of authority, not just government, but children to your parents and employees to their bosses. And you say, well, Kyle, that's the rule. What's the exception? I listened to Alistair Begg preach this passage this week. And uh, he said, we always want to raise the exception question. 
Don't worry about the exception. Worry about living an exceptional life. But I know our church, and since we all have some pirate blood in us, let's just answer the question. When is it okay not to obey authority? Well, there are two scenarios. First, when authority asks you to do what the Bible forbids. Secondly, when authority forbids you to do what the Bible commands. When either of those happen, we revolt. We will not disobey God, whether that means imprisonment or burning at the stake. We do not obey commands that conflict with the word of God, whether it comes from Stalin, Napoleon, the U.S. Supreme Court, a police officer, or your boss. Now hear me, even then our disobedience is passive and not active. We don't bomb abortion clinics. How did slavery end in the Americas? Submissive toward government and subversive at the same time. Disagree without dishonoring to to lobby. Now it's impossible for me to tease out every scenario, but if you have a certain question, um, Daniel Herbster would be glad to work out (laughs) how a gospel-centered response would work out in that scenario. When Barack Obama was president, I would see professing Christians walk around with shirts that said, Obama isn't my president. Now that Donald Trump is president, I again see professing Christians wearing shirts that say, Trump isn't my president. There's a growing antagonism to government and a growing pessimism toward leaders. There's an evangelism book that asks an extremely honest question. I'm going to substitute one word in his sentence just to make it applicable for our text. But here's the question. What do you do when you feel like you want your political leaders to go to hell? Some Christians feel a considerable amount of anger toward their leaders. They feel angry at how they seem to be portrayed in the media, how the other side seems to twist reality and always get away with it. And it's not just politics. It's professors rewriting History and judges redefining morality and theologians rewriting the Bible. And as you watch that demise, you're tempted to react with either anger or fear. And I'm here to tell you from this text, you have absolutely, as a Christian, no reason to panic. There's no reason for a Christian to panic. And I'll prove it to you. Two reasons. One, God is sovereign. Fear and resentment about the culture around you may be an indicator that you think God is letting things slip out of his control. We gladly vote and speak our conscience, but no matter the result, we can rest with complete confidence that God's purposes are never thwarted. He raises kingdoms to power and he can bring them down. You shouldn't panic because one, God is sovereign. Two, We are citizens of another world. We are citizens of another world. My wife, who's in Canada at the moment, she's, I don't know, she's flying back from Canada right now, but she's a citizen of Canada, citizen of the United States, but ultimately we are citizens of another world. Well, well, Kyle, we don't have a government with strong character or integrity. When have we ever had that? We must remember that the condition of our island leaders, what condition are they in? 
Do we forget that they are blinded in their minds by the God of this world? What else do you expect unconverted people to act like? They're going to act like unconverted people. And we are to put the gospel on display in our lives because ultimately legislating morality will not change anyone. We must, we must live lives that show our hope is on Calvary's hill and not Capitol Hill. How are we to live before the spies? Number two, live out Jesus' command to love your neighbor. Now, Paul's no longer thinking solely of a believer's relationship to the state. Notice he's shifting here in verse 2. Speak evil of no one. Now, this does not mean be naive and never correctly evaluate and speak about the wrong things that you see. Rather, it's urging us to restrain from our natural inclinations to say the worst about people. The worst about your coworker, The worst about your boss. The worst about your family member. The worst about your customers. We are not marked by insulting language. Notice next, avoid quarreling. One historian said of this island of spies that verbal slander was, a, was practiced as a fine art. I know some people who are Picassos at verbal slander. Da Vinci's at running their mouths. Paul says, don't quarrel. Don't drop the gloves every time you are offended. No insults, no fights. God's people should be big-hearted and courteous. Does your Twitter account reveal that? The verse continues, Be gentle. Show perfect courtesy toward all people. One author wrote, one author wrote that the islanders treated the people around them with a, a thinly veiled disdain. The word translated perfect here is actually the Greek term for all. You can't see it in the English, but this is what it's saying. God bids us show all courtesy to all men. All people. How are we to live before the island of spies? Number three. Live like you remember where God found you. Remember the slime you swam in. Notice verse three. For we ourselves were once... Let's just stop there. Notice that Paul includes himself in this. It wasn't long ago that we ourselves were self-centered, self-swindled, Satan-deceived rebels. And it is perhaps the, perhaps the best way to grasp verse 3 is, is with four couplets. Four couplets. Let's, let's look at the first couplet. Foolish and disobedient. See that in the verse? Foolish speaks of someone who is intellectually biased against God. Disobedience speaks of someone who is deliberately choosing to rebel, not only against the idea of God, but against the moral standard of God. So we were mentally and morally depraved. We lacked sense and sensibility. We, we possess an evil of the mind that's foolish, and we possess an evil of the body that's disobedient. That's the first couplet. Notice the second. Led astray and enslaved to sin. Both of these verbs are passive and indicate that we were the victims of evil influences. We flirted with both beauties who pr promised to liberate us, but they merely enslaved us. Sin always promises freedom, but only delivers slavery. Notice the first couplet, we are responsible. And in the second couplet, we are victims. And now we go through the third. Passing days in malice and envy. 
We spent our days with these ugly twins. Wanting bad things to happen to people. Malice. Wanting someone else's good things. Envy. See, the, the first couplet deals with our attitude toward God. The second couplet deals with our attitude toward sin. And notice this third couplet and the fourth couplet deal with our attitude toward others. Let's just look at the fourth. Hated by others and hating one another. Because our relationship with God is a mess, our relationship with others is a mess. Think for a moment about the shallowness of your human relationships before you met Christ. He said, those are eight pretty difficult terms. All these terms can be added to the plethora of descriptions that we find throughout the New Testament that describe our sad and tragic fallen condition. Don't you dare reduce your life and live like, well, I read three chapters today. I read three chapters in the Bible today. No, remember your former condition. Take some time to reflect on your own innate sinfulness. The contrast between before and after is a reoccurring theme in Paul's writings. Paul loves the formula, once we were, but now we are. Fourthly, when we live in the island of, before the island of spies, we need to live with understanding about what Christ accomplished for you on the cross. This is going to take a bit here to unpack. Verses 4 through 7 form a long, uninterrupted, run-on sentence. Paul would have had a lot of red marks on his homework sheets. He liked run-on sentences. I'm convinced the Apostle Paul was always running out of ink. I haven't pointed out all the run-on sentences to you throughout the book, but this particular run-on sentence, there's an explanation for it. Most scholars call these verses a song or a hymn. It's Paul's soteriology song. It's his doctrine of salvation hymn. And after studying it, I, I, I don't agree. I think it lacks the poetic elements of a hymn. So I think it's more like an ancient creed. You've heard of the Nicene Creed or the Apostles' Creed. Well, this creed isn't merely based off of the Bible. It's a creed that's in the Bible. Let's begin to unpack this creed in verse 4. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us. How many of you have ever had to make a difficult decision? Would you raise your hand if you've ever had to make a difficult decision? Okay. Sometimes when you make decisions, you have this list of pros and cons. Imagine if God made a pros and cons list on if he should save us. The con side, we are foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to passions and pleasures, malice, envy, and hate. We're filled with it. The pro side, nothing. There are no reasons why God should save us. But then God writes across the page, my kindness, my goodness. God did not look at us and think, you know, they're, they're not too bad. I can see some potential there. It wasn't even that God loved some future version of us. He loved us even in our sin and defilement. The, the word loving kindness in the Greek is the word philanthropia from which we get our word philanthropy, love of humanity. The goodness and philanthropy of God appeared. Our salvation began with God. Jesus didn't persuade God to save us. God came to our sewer, sludged in our slime, 
We weren't looking for him. He came looking for us. He rescued us. And you say, well, what was my part in salvation? You had a part. Don't let anyone tell you you didn't have a part in salvation. You, you had a part. You had a big part. What was your part in salvation? You did all the sinning. <laughs> God did all the saving. You did verse 3. And God did verse 4. Now let's look at verse 5. He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. Now this whole sentence from verse 4 to 7 hinges on a main verb, and it's the verb saved. And there are people who reject the word saved. It sounds unintellectual to them. Do we really need to be saved? That's very archaic. John MacArthur preached the gospel one time in a strictly evangelistic setting. And afterwards, some people came up to him and they said, John, we, we appreciate your effort, but we think you ought to stop using the word saved since it's become a relevant word in the English vocabulary, and we think you need to find a new term. Well, here's the problem with that. It's really difficult to improve on the Word of God. What God does for us is nothing other than unmixed, undiluted, unmistakable saving. Verse 5 continues, by the washing of regeneration. Now this word washing refers, some say it refers to baptism, and they have taught baptismal regeneration, that you're not saved unless you're baptized. Any serious student of the word would not hold to this. But commentators, conservative ones, do, do divide on whether Paul is using this word washed as a veiled reference to baptism. I, I don't think so. The word Paul uses here for washing is not baptizo, but lutron. It's a reference to a complete long bath. And that's how vile we are. We don't need a little washing. We need a full bath. What type of washing? Washing of regeneration. This word regeneration is only used two times in the Bible. Literally, it means regenesis. That's why they say regenerate. It's kind of like a transliteration. Maybe you've heard of neighborhood regenerations. We get together and by our power we can make bad houses look good. Old neighborhoods look new. Don't think for a moment that's what's happening here. You can't be regenerated by your willpower. It takes God's power. You, you can't get a cat to be a dog. You need a regening. You need a new birth. And regeneration is another way of speaking about the new birth, the second birth, being born again. Spiritually, you need more than a monster energy drink. You're not laying on a stretcher, but in a tomb. And without Christ, you are a spiritual corpse. You are dead. And there are no degrees of dead people. They're all equally dead. And, and for those of you that are non-Christians... You've never repented of your sins and put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. For those of you that are non-Christians, if you are born again, you are awakened from a spiritual death. And then suddenly it gives you eyes to see, ears to hear, and a spiritual sense to taste that Jesus is supremely satisfying. Next, verse 5, and renewal of the Holy Spirit. So let's compare the two. Regeneration consists negatively of removing filth. Renewal consists positively of renewing thoughts, feelings, affections. 
A whole new reversal of a person's natural tendencies. Conversion has two halves, a negative cleansing and a positive recreation. And both of those are done by the Holy Spirit. Regeneration and renewal describes the same event, but from two different points of view. Regeneration is a, is a moment in time. Renewal is a lifetime. Regeneration is like once-in-a-lifetime spiritual bath. Renewal is like a daily shower. It's interesting with the two words. There's a, there's a massive echo from Ezekiel chapter 36 where God says, I will clean you and then give you my spirit. Both clean and new. Now, the words regeneration and renewal are just loaded with freight, so I'm trying not to go overboard with this. But what happens on a local level in us will also happen on a global level. Tim Keller calls every conversion time travel. The only other time the word regeneration is used is in Matthew chapter 19, verse 28, where Jesus uses it to refer to what he's going to do in the new world. God's purpose is not only for people to be born again, but for all creation to be born again. The great universal new birth. We aren't the only things that are falling. Trees and grass and water and animals. We aren't the only ones who are defiled and disordered. When human beings sinned in the beginning, God made creation a visible display of the horrors of sin. And then Jesus says... Here, he's going to make us new. He's going to regenerate us on a, on a local level. But he says in Matthew, the whole cosmos will go through regeneration, a rebirth, a new genesis, and a place that is more glorious than Eden. Notice verse 6. Whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. I don't know if you caught it, but there's the Trinity here. The creed has already brought up two members of the Godhead, God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. The third member is introduced here in verse 6, Jesus Christ. And this is one of the most elegant descriptions of the Trinity in the New Testament. It shows that the three members of the Godhead actively engaged in the salvation of sinners. God the Father as the planner and initiator, verse 4. Jesus Christ as the agent of redemption, verse 6. And the Holy Spirit as the instrument of regeneration and renewal, verse 5. Salvation is Trinitarian. And, and some people speak about the Holy Spirit like we can only experience part of Him. And they'll say things like this, God, I, would, I wish you'll give me more of the Holy Spirit. Well, that's wrong. At regeneration, the Holy Spirit is poured out on us, and God measures out the Spirit in accordance with what His Son deserves. So how much... Is Jesus to serve. So it's not like pouring out a cup of water. He is, it's like standing under the Niagara Falls. The Spirit is poured on us at conversion. Verse 7. So that being justified by His grace. We have people in our church who were former attorneys. And justified is a legal term. Meaning to declare righteous without fault. And the aorist tense indicates that this ruling is already ours, bestowed at the moment of regeneration. A trial has already taken place. The charge was that we were foolish, disobedient, hateful, filled with envy, malice, hate. There was enough evidence to convict us. We are guilty, but loving kindness stepped in. The philanthropy of God.
God stepped in. The verse continues, so that we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Heirs of everything included in eternal life. New heavens, new earth, new body, new perfected relationships. That's what's coming to the believer in Christ. How are we to live before the island of spies? Number five, live out the gospel by doing good works. Some of you think I just cursed there? Good works? It's actually not a curse word. I know to most churches, they think it is. It's not a curse word. Notice verse 8. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things, the good works, these things are excellent and profitable for people. Paul tells Titus, I want you to insist, I want you to put your foot down, take a firm stand on how the gospel should be lived out. Now we know already in the book, before the gospel says behave, it says behold. And when you beheld the glory of God, that sight gives you behavior that is consistent with the holiness. Like a coach on the sidelines as the time is running out, Paul yells in the ear of his quarterback, here's what I want you to do. Titus, first, be careful. It's the only time the verb is used in the New Testament. It means to think deeply, to be intentional. Be intentional about what? Well, that's the second thing he, he yells in the ear of Titus. Train people to do good works. The language implies being creative in training. The verb is in the present tense, which means Paul is referring not just to a singular, singular isolated good deed, but to a way of life. So now you have intentionality plus creativity and doing good works. And, and would you notice that um, good works form a sandwich, or, or as theologians call it, an inclusio for our text. You find good works in verse 1. Then you find good works in verse 8, and it sandwiches everything. The dominant theme of Titus is good works. In other words, hey, you islanders, show exemplary Christian behavior for the sake of the outsiders. Roy Hattersley. It's not a name you need to know, but he's a Labor Party leader in the UK. And he's a public, outspoken atheist. He actually spent some time spying on Christians. And I have this powerful quote here that I want to read. I'm going to read it at length. So I want you to hear this coming from a strong, outspoken atheist. He says, and I quote, The arguments against Christianity are well known and persuasive. Yet men and women who believe in Christ are the people most likely to take the risk and make the sacrifices involved in helping others. Good works, the Christian John Wesley insisted, are no guarantee of a place in heaven. But they are most likely to be performed by people who believe that heaven exists. The correlation is so clear that it is impossible to doubt that faith and good works go hand in hand. It ought to be possible to live a Christian life without being a Christian. Yet men and women who, like me, cannot accept the mysteries and the miracles do not go out with the Salvation Army each night. The only possible conclusion is that faith comes with a packet of moral imperatives that make them, more, that make them morally superior to atheists like me. 
We may boast that the truth of atheism has freed us from the shackles of religion, but it has not made us as admirable as the average volunteer in the Salvation Army. End quote. Spies are watching. I'm going to give you two applications and I'm finished. Application number one. Live on the island like someone is always spying on you. Live on the island like someone is always spying on you. Caesar Hadrian became Caesar of Rome in 117. He was not a Christian man. He became weirded out by the small but very rapidly growing cult called the Way. We call it Christianity. And he sent men to get to the bottom of what made us as the people of God distinct. So, so he sends a spy to check us out. Literally a spy. The spy's name is Aristides. And I'm not sure if he was wearing flower lays and cheesy sunglasses and had a dab of sunscreen on his nose. But I know he went and he spied. And in a letter back to Caesar, Aristides described the group of people on their island. And his words are as insightful in the 21st century as they were in the 2nd century. He wrote, and I quote, But the Christians, O king, have found the truth. For they know and trust in God, the creator of heaven and earth, from whom they received commandments which they engraved upon their minds. Wherefore they do not commit adultery, nor fornication, or bear false witness, nor embezzle. They honor father and mother and show kindness, and whenever they are judges, they judge rightly. And their oppressors, they comfort and make them their friends. And they do good to their enemies. And their women, O king, are pure as virgins. And their daughters are modest. And their men keep themselves from every unlawful union and from all uncleanness. They go all their way in all modesty and cheerfulness. And they love one another. They observe the precepts of their Messiah with much care. Living justly and soberly as the Lord their God commanded them. Every morning and every hour they give thanks and praise to God for his loving kindness toward them. His philanthropy toward them. Live on the island like someone is spying on you. Application number two. Live on the island believing that gospel-filled, joy-filled lives will make defectors out of spies. Live on the island believing that gospel-filled, joy-filled lives will make defectors out of spies. As you know, we're, we're reading in Titus, and so our text is in the first century. I just read you a story in the second century, so let's just keep that, that show going on here. Let me give you an account from the third century. Cyprian was a famous North African. He spent some time spying on a group of Christians. He later wrote to his friend Donatus about them. He says, This seems a cheerful world, Donatus, when I view it from the fair garden under the shadow of these vines. But if I climbed some great mountain and looked out over the wide land, you know very well what I would see. Thieves on the high roads, pirates on the seas, and in the amphitheaters men murdered to please applauding crowds, and under all roofs misery and selfishness. It really is a bad world, Donatus. An incredibly bad world. Yet, in the midst of it, I have found a quiet and holy people. They have discovered a joy which is a thousand times better than any pleasures of this sinful life. 
They are despised and persecuted, but they care not. These people, Donatists, are the Christians. And now, I am one. Thank you for listening to this resource of Faith Family Church. We gather on Sundays at 495 Hugh Hunter Road in Oak Grove, Kentucky, and are a short drive from Fort Campbell and Hopkinsville, Kentucky, as well as Clarksville, Tennessee. For more information, visit our website, myfaithfamilychurch.com.